You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. Today's show is going to focus on the idea that no one looks out for you better than you. And it's a really important thing to understand, especially as we talk about free market health care, which, of course, this show is all about. I've been in healthcare now for almost 30 years as a medical student, uh, resident, uh, in private practice. I've worked in big hospital systems. I've worked in private practices. I've worked at uh, VA hospitals. And I've had experience with just about every kind of healthcare that one can imagine. And I've had an ability to take what I've seen over the years and come up with some conclusions and some opinions and some observations that I want to share with you guys uh, about free market healthcare. And my ultimate goal is to help people to understand just why socialized medicine, a one-size-fits-all government-run top-down system, is a horrible way to allocate healthcare resources and that our best option is a free market healthcare system which involves capitalism, it involves individual rights, and it involves competitions between free people. Because that always gives us the best products at the lowest price and also gives us the most choices, and it also stimulates the greatest innovation. Whereas a government-run, one-size-fits-all, top-down socialized medicine system rations care, it blocks innovation, and it keeps prices uh, massively high. Now, I feel like we've learned a lot about healthcare and the way it works through the COVID pandemic. And I've been sharing with you throughout this entire time uh, all of my observations because, as a person who runs a very large clinic with a lot of employees, we have a lot of different locations a surgery center, uh, we have imaging, uh, MRI machines, and so we've had a lot of patient interactions within our practice, and I've been able to observe with my own eyes uh, the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, and I've also been studying and reading about it as an informed person uh, like any doctor would. That's what doctors do. We we research information, we come up with treatment plans, we educate our patients, and we help guide them through treatment. And I was tasked with making sure that my patients, my family, myself, my practice was able to deliver our health care and to stay safe through COVID. And observing this throughout the past year has really opened my eyes even more uh, to help understand why socialized medicine, government-run medicine is such a bad idea and why it actually prevents us from receiving the appropriate care. And I would make the assertion that our hospitals nationwide are still not functioning properly based on the science. Our schools are still closed down, having nothing to do with science. In many places, we're still wearing masks and even open and free discussion about the medical uh, issues of the day are being censored by big tech and by government. And 
it's creating a dangerous situation and we really need to open our eyes and start to think critically again. And part of critical thinking is having the ability to ask questions out loud without fear of persecution. Now, I have lots of people who are always telling me, don't talk about this stuff. If you talk about things that are unpopular and uh, certain people get a hold of it, that you'll be canceled. And so I think about this on a daily basis. uh, But I feel like we're in a part of this country right now, we're in a place that is so dangerous that if people don't find the courage to speak out, if people don't find the courage to say that scientifically there are only two genders, that's the way I was taught in medical school, and you know, be able to say that in a crowded room without fear of losing my job or losing my position or losing friends... Uh, I know we've all had a a stressful time during this COVID outbreak. I know I've shared with you guys problems in my own family um, in terms of there's a certain belief system that developed because of this red line hysterical presentation of the facts around COVID, which are basically in many cases just lies, overt lies. And I've talked about them on this show um, a lot. I have a different perspective than a lot of people. I understand what coronavirus is. I understand epidemiology. I understand virology. Uh, I understand vaccines. Um, I understand medicine. I understand how respiratory illnesses are transmitted. I understand about masks. And I'm not saying I'm the most knowledgeable person in the world, but I'm a very educated person in these areas. And I've spent years studying masks long before COVID ever became an issue. And I've noticed that a year into this thing, our response to COVID has become almost 100% political. So that if you come across a healthcare provider and they're wearing masks and talking about vaccines, in many cases, you you know their politics. And then other uh, doctors will uh, oppose masks like me, oppose the lockdowns and um, be skeptical of the vaccine people immediately know what my politics is. And I'm thinking to myself, how did we get to a place where somebody's politics is reflective of their opinion on medicine? Now, my father uh, died of Parkinson's disease in 2016. And it was a really tough time for me. I had a really great relationship with my father. He taught me how to be a man. He taught me about life. Um, I feel like he's really responsible for the person I am today. And I also feel like in our programs where we try to mentor young kids that one of the greatest things you can have in life is a father type person to be able to pick you up when you're down and to teach you how to be a good person. And uh, my father Uh, started to demonstrate Parkinson's disease about 10 years prior to his death. Um, We were playing golf. He was an avid golfer, and I always imagined that my father uh, was going to play golf in his golden years. And um, I remember we were playing one time, and he had a really short putt, and I really thought he couldn't miss it, and I made some comment like, you know, you're going to miss it, and then he did. And it really frustrated him. And I can remember as soon as I said it and he missed the putt, I wanted to take it back. And I just couldn't believe that he missed such an easy putt. And it really hurt him and frustrated him. 
And what I didn't know at the time, and I don't think he knew at the time, was he was already suffering from the effects of Parkinson's disease. Now, the Parkinson's got worse over time, and uh, by the end, um, he had a hard time communicating. His short-term memory was gone, and I would have these conversations with him, and then every two minutes he'd be asking me the exact same question over and over again, and it hurt me. Uh, you know, I was... Um, I was in a lot of pain for myself. Um, I was very scared about my father. I went to all of my friends who were neurologists to to ask if there was anything I could do. I started researching Parkinson's to see if there was anything that I could do. And uh, one day, he had a, a breakdown, he, a complete mental breakdown. My, my younger brother called me and said, Dad's gone catatonic. He was taken to the hospital. And... Uh, he was unable to communicate, uh, and we were sort of at the end, and it came unexpectedly. Um, I, I I had to get together with my brothers and my mother and, and talk about what to do, and I remember thinking I had had these conversations with my father many, many times over the years about quality of life and what his views are were about um you know what he would want for himself in these situations and he was very clear to me that uh if he was unable to care for himself that that he wanted to to meet his maker and i knew this about him and my concern was how do i care for my father at the end now i have my family i have my kids um i had work I had a lot of responsibilities. My brothers did as well, and my mom uh, was not really capable of completely taking care of my father, and so we moved him into a nursing home. And I remember just my own uh, psychology on this. I, I, I had almost an irrational concern that my father would have to uh, lay in his own waste. And, um, you know, you'd go to the bathroom. And I was so worried that that would happen. And, I, you know, it probably has something to do with the respect thing for my father. And I, I started looking at nursing homes. And I started to realize that there's really no way to care for somebody the way you would care for somebody. So I love my father as much as a son could love his father. And I did not have the ability to just stop all of my other responsibilities and be there to take care of my father in the way I wanted to, and it hurt me. And I fortunately had the means to at least hire a personal uh, care person, and even that person standing by his bedside was not changing my father and, and, and looking after him the way I wanted to, and it really drove home for me. I wish that there was a way to get somebody to care for my father the way I wanted to that didn't involve me quitting my job and not taking care of my own family and taking care of my own responsibilities. And the thing I realized, there just isn't. There's no way that you can find somebody who's going to love your, your dad in this case or whoever enough in the same way that you would. And the same thing is true about socialized medicine. When we say to ourselves, we want to have the government take care of our health care, and we want them to look out for us uh, as, as well as we would look out for ourselves, it's a great thought. It's a great wish. 
The problem is it just can't happen. And so we're left with the problem, what do we do? Now, healthcare is a valuable resource, and it's a, a limited resource, and there are only two ways to allocate limited resources, and that's either some sort of government body, that's socialized medicine, a one-size-fits-all, government-run, top-down uh, system that rations care, or a free market system, which we have talked about many times on this show. The free market system always delivers the highest quality at the lowest price and gives us the most choices and promotes innovation. We've often talked about on this show uh, the great Milton Friedman, the economist, who talked about the four ways to spend money. The worst way to spend money is for other people to spend other people's money. Cost doesn't count and quality doesn't count. It's not for you and and it's not your money. Uh, You can spend other people's money on you The cost is irrelevant. The quality matters because it's on you, but it's not your money, so you don't care about the cost. You can spend your money on others. Cost matters because it's your money, but the quality of the product you provide doesn't matter so much because you're buying for other people. And then the best way to spend money is for you to spend your money on yourself. Both both cost and quality matter. And I want to talk about... um, the practical implication of this. Uh, when I was in residency, I was an orthopedic surgeon, so I was on the orthopedic team. You also had general surgery. And general surgery uh, tends to have a bigger group of people in a residency program. You have more doctors. And then orthopedics is more of a specialized thing, and you had fewer doctors. When patients would come in to the trauma center, they'd often have orthopedic injuries to their bones and muscles and things like that, but they would have other injuries to maybe the head or or their liver or their heart and, and other problems. And so usually if it was us isolated musculoskeletal issues, the patients would be allocated to the orthopedic service. So if you just broke a bone, you'd be admitted to the ortho service. But if you had pulmonary edema because your your you know chest hit the steering wheel and you had a, a, a bruise on your lungs that made it hard for you to breathe and you broke your thigh bone, then you would be admitted to the trauma service. And the orthopedic service would consult. Now, the importance of this is all of the day-to-day work, all of the paperwork and the discharges and all of the, if the patients have issues in the middle of the night, that work falls on the person who admitted or the group that admitted the patient. So if the patient is admitted to, is admitted to the, the trauma service with the general surgeons, If that patient has an issue in the middle of the night, the nurse is going to call and wake up the general surgeon. If uh, when the patient gets to the point where they're ready for discharge, there is a lot of paperwork that goes into that. You have to do what's called a discharge summary, which means you got to go through all these notes. And back in those days, they were all handwritten notes. So you're reading this chicken scratch, trying to figure out what's going on. It was really a painful experience. You had to write all the prescriptions and set up all the appointments. It was a lot of work. And so it was a big deal when a patient came in to make sure that that patient got admitted to the another service so that they would have all that extra work to do, and then you would just consult and do the things that were relevant to your work. And this created 
um, almost attention, not atten- almost attention. I mean, I can remember us breaking out into fist fights over this. We were young men and women and uh, overworked and very tired. And, and there were actually uh, fist fights that would break out in the hallways over this type of stuff. And so when it came to, and the point is, as residents, we had no financial interest in this. This was just us doing our jobs, us doing our work, um, and our natural instincts, meaning I want to create the least amount of work for myself. That's just how we're all built. That's just the way human beings are. And there's going to be a point to this story. This idea that, well, well, let me finish the story. So this was kind of the the tension and... um, we used to talk about uh, being the wall. So as an orthopedic resident, when I was a young person, all of the older people on the orthopedic service would tell me and, and everybody else, when you're on call at night, make sure you're the wall, which means make sure that patients are not admitted to our service. Make sure that when patients get admitted, they get admitted to somebody else's service, and then we can just consult and do the orthopedic work. And I can remember one time in particular, uh, a patient came in, and at the place that I was training, University of Miami, uh, spine is kind of, um, when you have spine injuries, sometimes an orthopedic spine surgeon can do it, and sometimes a neurosurgeon does it. And so just sort of the arbitration system they had there was, if you had just uh, no neurologic deficit and a spine injury, it would go to orthopedics. And if you had a neurologic deficit, it would go to neurosurgery. So this was just kind of the way they did it. And I remember I was, uh, I think, probably even an intern. uh, And a patient came in with a gunshot wound to the sacrum, which was, you know, your tailbone. And there's a little nerve root there that has a nerve that does sensation to the area around your anus. And I can remember going in with a toothpick and and confirming that this person could not feel the very inner part of their anus. Now, for all intents and purposes, this is not really a neurologic injury. It's such a small thing, but it technically is a neurologic injury. And I can remember the uh, head of the neurosurgery department comes down and is raging at me. And here I am, an intern. I mean, I'm you know new to being a doctor, and I'm still trying to feel my way around, and you got this you know, person from neurosurgery who's screaming at me, and it was quite an intimidating situation. And I can remember the hospital arbiter coming down and looking at the situation and going, well, there's a neurologic deficit. It goes to neurosurgery. And I'll bet you they're still talking about that uh, at the University of Miami because um, not to pat myself, well, to pat myself on the back a little bit, I did a very thorough exam and I was able to find this very inconsequential neurologic deficit that technically made it go to the, another service. So the reason I'm telling you this, I'm just trying to give you the feel for what it was like in residency. You're in trauma, you know, you're up all night. A lot of times we were up 36 hours and people are coming in with plane wrecks and car wrecks and falling off buildings and shark attacks and boating accidents and burns and I mean all kinds of things. And it was just, we used to call it trauma-rama. And uh, anyway, we had a patient come in one time. This is when I'm a uh, the chief on trauma. So now, five years ahead, I'm the head guy, so I'm running the trauma service as a resident. Patient comes in, and they broke both their wrists. We immediately took them to the operating room and fixed both their wrists. The patient came down with a problem called ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, probably because uh, they had their chest hit the steering wheel or something like that in a car accident. 
And they ended up being uh, uh, intubated for six weeks. So we fixed the wrists. We're done as orthopedic surgeons. It's over. That patient then went into the hospital, uh, into the ICU for six weeks on a respirator, a ventilator, I should say. Um, as orthopedic surgery department, we rounded on that patient every day. We came in. We looked at our wounds. We checked our work. You know, we did what we were supposed to do. And then the six weeks later, the patient wakes up, and they're ready for discharge. And the head of the general surgery department comes to me, and he says, I want you to transfer that patient back to orthopedics um, today and then discharge him. And I thought to myself, we've been done with that patient for six weeks. It's on your service. Just discharge him home and have him follow up with us uh, a week after discharge. That would be the normal thing. Well, he didn't want to do all of the paperwork. And so he tells me, well, I'm just going to call your your uh, the, the actual doctor, our mentor, uh, and just tell him that you're going to do this. And I was like, he's not going to do that. Uh, he knows that morally, you know, in every way possible, this is your patient, and you guys should just do the paperwork and discharge this patient and get him out. And I told him, go ahead and call the guy, my boss. He'll tell you the same thing. Well, I went home. It was a weekend, and I came back that Monday. And the very first thing I saw was that patient sitting there on our service, transferred to the orthopedic service. And so we ended up having to do all of that work to discharge this patient. And I remember uh, the my boss, I went up to him and I asked him, what did you do that for? I mean, do you understand how much work we have to do? We're, as an orthopedic department, we're a much smaller service. They have so many more resources on the general surgery uh, uh, side that you really stabbed us in the back by doing that, and I really couldn't believe that you did it. And he basically just said, oh, you know, I was out on the boat, and I just didn't want to argue about it. This is a person who's supposed to understand what we're going through. He's supposed to have our back. He's supposed to protect us, and he didn't. And that's kind of the point. If we allow the government to manage our health care, they don't care about you as an individual, and it's not about people being good, bad, or indifferent. It's just the way it is. Just like when my father was in a nursing home and I wanted him to have quality care, I wanted him to be cared for the way I would do it. It just wasn't possible. It's just the way the world works. And so the the point I'm trying to make is in order for us to get the kind of health care that we want, we have to be in charge. And that is a uh, free market system. Now, I remember uh, many years ago, I was um, out of college. I was, uh, many of you know, I've shared the story many times that uh, I applied to medical school five times before being accepted. So I'm out of college and I'm working two bartender jobs and as a fitness trainer. So I got three jobs and um, my brakes on my car started to squeak. Um, I want to say, I can't even remember what kind of car it was, <clears throat> some kind of gold thing. Uh, this is probably back in 1988 or 1989. And uh, I noticed my brakes were squeaking, but they worked. And um, I'm not a car guy. So uh, I don't really, my, my little brother, he knows everything there is to know about cars and, and talks about it all the time. I, I don't know anything. I just, I like power windows 
and I like my car to turn on when I when I turn the key, or I guess nowadays when I press the button. Uh, that's really all I care about, and that it gets me from A to B, and of course that it has air conditioning. But other than that, I'm good. Any kind of car works for me. So uh, anyway, my brakes are squeaking, and uh, me being me, I waited until they no longer worked. They kind of squeaked, and then I would really have to push on those brakes really hard to get the car to stop, and then eventually got to the point where the car simply wouldn't stop. So at this point, I now have to take my car in. And like a lot of young people, you know, I didn't have a lot of money, so I wasn't excited to take my car uh, into the shop because I would end up spending money that was already allocated for, you know, food and rent and that kind of stuff. Anyway, I go to the... uh, I go to the shop, and um, the guy starts talking to me about the car. And I'm sure many of you have had this same experience. He starts telling me about this and that and all these different things. I can't even be funny about it because I don't know anything about cars. But he's basically speaking a foreign language to me. I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, kind of like if I was a doctor explaining to you about your medical care. You have no idea what I'm talking about. You're just trusting me to give you that information. Anyway, this guy tells me that it's going to cost $500 to fix my brake. And I'm thinking to myself, well, there goes eating for the next month. Um, so I called my dad and I said, hey, dad, I, my, my brakes broke down. I took it to the shop and the guy's telling me it's 500 bucks to get it fixed. What do you think? And my father asked me if my brakes are made out of solid gold. And I said, I don't think so. And he goes, I think you should get another opinion. And so I took my car to a different place And it was much cheaper. And I got my brakes fixed. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because I think it's analogous to me as a person not knowing anything about cars, taking my car into the shop and being told something by one person that turned out to not be true. I was able to take my car to a different person and get different information and get my car fixed for a lot cheaper. This is what you need in your health care, too. If you think that doctors are not held accountable by competition, you're wrong. And the reason I'm telling you that is doctors are exactly like other people. There's some good, some bad. We all see things differently. Nothing has uh, highlighted this more for me than what we're seeing with the COVID epidemic. And this is why it's just so critical that as a patient population, you have the ability to see the doctor that you want to see, that you can see as many doctors as you want to see, and that you get to choose who actually delivers your care and what care you get. When you allow somebody else to make those decisions for you, in many cases, you're going to get bad decisions. You're going to get decisions that are not in line with what your belief system is. And you're going to get a poor quality care. Now, another thing I want to point out is quality. What does that even mean? Now, 20 years ago, when I first started, the vast majority of physicians were were self-employed. Now, fast forward 20 years with the um, with the rollout of the Affordable Care Act, and what I have pointed out is a uh, corrupt relationship between the hospital systems, the government, the insurance companies. We have seen now a majority of physicians are now in an employed position. So, 53% of doctors are now employed by hospitals and other other entities. And you might ask yourself, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal is that these hospitals create perverse relationships between doctors and patients. And we've talked about this before that. The hospital rates doctors 
and they rate their doctors by things that don't necessarily have anything to do with the quality of that doctor. For example, if a doctor readmits a patient within 30 days of discharge, then it's a knock on the doctor. They look negatively at the doctor and they cause financial consequences to that doctor. And so you create this situation where as a physician, if I'm discharging my patient from the hospital, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure they don't get readmitted in 30 days, within 30 days, because it'll make me look bad. Now, a patient may have to get admitted within 30 days. It has nothing to do with the quality of the care that they got. It's just this random um, arrangement that's been set up, this perverse arrangement. And it's important that people understand this uh, and understand why it's so important that your doctor's fidelity is to you and not to some other entity like the government or a hospital system. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit more when we come back from this break. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. When we left for break a minute ago, we were just talking about the problem with the increasing penetration of government control in our healthcare system and the expanding uh, socialized medicine that is taking place in our healthcare system and how it creates perverse relationships between doctors and patients and where a doctor's fidelity tends to be towards the hospital system that employs them and away from the patients. Uh, this is a problem uh, because it it damages the doctor-patient relationship and affects the quality of care and the availability of care and the type of care that we receive. And we need to move away from this system and not towards this system. The people have to understand that much like our public school system and you know there is a perverse relationship between these public sector unions in our education system and politicians. So politicians make policies that are favorable to the teachers' unions. They prevent things like school choice and they oppose it. They throw lots of money at failing school systems. 
I think I saw something the Chicago public school system a while ago. Thirteen percent of children were uh, qualified to uh, basically receive their high school diploma when they when they graduated. Thirteen percent. You couldn't do a worse job if you were trying to prevent these kids from learning. And so what happens is the money goes from the politicians to the teachers unions, from the teachers unions back to the politicians, and we the people have no say in that. And so. We're left with this failing public school system, which by all by all measures is failing, uh, and we're preventing our we we prevent the ability for school choice and other options to fill the marketplace. Well, hospital systems are no different. Hospital systems located in cities are basically big wealth redistribution centers, and politicians will affect the changes in reimbursement to hospital systems and then those monies that the hospital systems get go right back to the politicians and there's this cycle of money that goes from the government politicians to the hospitals from the hospitals back to the politicians and we the people have no say in that and it's got to stop and if you don't believe me let's just look at the covid uh epidemic and and let's review so We know that, uh, and I've talked about this many times, that COVID became an issue right around the beginning of 2020, right at the beginning of the year. We know that the Royal College of London came out and irresponsibly said that the mortality rate for COVID-19 was 3.4%. People like me screamed at the top of our lungs, why in the world would you say 3.4% when they know that there are people that are not in the hospital that have COVID that are not symptomatic and that that 3.4% number is ridiculously high and that to say it out loud was creating a panic. Well, in my opinion, that was the whole point. They wanted to create a panic because it allowed them to do other things like implement lockdowns. Um, The lockdowns got implemented. Uh, People like me did research and looked at available research research and discovered a medication called hydroxychloroquine, which has been FDA approved for 65 years, uh, and it seemed to be effective in early treatment of COVID-19, but that information uh, never seemed to make it out into the media. The media was constantly trying to prevent that from getting out there. I personally have been using hydroxychloroquine the entire year, and every single patient that I have given it to has recovered without incident. I've brought it up many times that we've had people get sick over the past years, but thank God, to my knowledge, nobody admitted to the hospital and no deaths. Um, And regardless of what you think about it, there should be no limit on my ability to talk about it. I'm an educated person, and I was not bringing to the table my own data. I was simply sharing data that's been available for anybody to read. And America's frontline doctors went to Washington, D.C. to share this information, to share research that's already been published. We talked about one of the papers that we referenced was uh, produced in 2005 by Dr. Fauci's uh, NIH. He was the head of the NIH at the time. And that is a paper that suggested that hydroxychloroquine could be effective in coronavirus um, disease. And yet none of this information was making it out. And you have to ask yourself, why was this happening? 
People like me, uh, we had 18 million live Facebook followers when we were in D.C., and regardless of what you think about what we were saying, we were saying something that I would argue is simply free speech. We were not being irrational. We were simply sharing information that was readily available to anybody, and we had 18, 000, sorry, 18 million live Facebook followers that were interested in what we had to say. And big tech censored us. They took down our platform and basically prevented us from sharing our information with people who wanted to hear it. And what was their reasoning behind it? They referenced the fact that we were making statements that were against the CDC recommendations. Well, gosh, where did those CDC recommendations come from? And we've brought it up many times on this show. The New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet published fake studies on hydroxychloroquine and I bring this up to people all the time and they seem to gloss it over and I'm thinking to myself how can you gloss over the number one and two medical journals on the face of the earth lied to us about something so critical as a medication treatment in the middle of a pandemic where they're trying to argue that everybody's dying from it I mean, this is just so egregious and so fundamentally wrong and so um, poignant. It's the reason why we cannot have government-run health care because they're not looking out for us. And the more they control our health care, the more they prevent us from looking out for ourselves. I'm telling you that hydroxychloroquine was... FDA approved for 65 years. It's literally got one of the safest drug profiles available of any drug. If you're if you have a kid who's been on a mission trip in a malaria zone, chances are they took this medication as prophylaxis. Uh, their argument in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet was that there were some sort of cardiac issues going on, and the reality is nobody ever did a cardiac workup on somebody before prescribing hydroxychloroquine before 2020. It was just simply a fabricated lie, and people like me knew it was a lie as soon as it was brought up. And yet our policy continues to be based on this information that isn't factual, and more importantly, the entities that are running our healthcare system are the very people that are perpetrating this lie. And sometimes I feel like I'm the one who's the insane one. And I know a lot of you out there feel like this. Uh, We've all kind of been through this. Now, when I was in high school, I graduated from high school in 1983. And so the book 1984 was very popular in 1983, George Orwell's 1984. And, And my classmates and I, we all read this book. And I remember in that year, my senior year of high school, we were always talking about it because it was just so creepy and it was so unbelievable. It could never happen. Uh, And if you guys haven't read 1984, you need to either get it in books on tape or read it because it is happening right now, full-fledged. And you need to understand how this plays out so that you can prepare. And that's what I want to really encourage people on this show is we're going to do critical thinking here. We're going to ask questions. We're going to talk about things. And you don't have to agree with what I say. I'm I'm trying to keep this show as me presenting my opinions. But I want to point out that they are my opinions and that I simply want to ask questions. And 
when I point things out, like we were sharing available information to 18 million live Facebook followers and some entity, Big Tech, decided that we needed to be banned, that should scare you. George Orwell's 1984 made the statement that truth becomes a hate crime. Well, have we not seen that over and over again, that people are just making statements of fact and they get canceled? That if we try to say things um, that are not politically popular, that we get censored, that we get banned, that people are in fear of losing their jobs? This is right out of George Orwell's 1984. They also talk about the memory hole, where they basically take facts, they throw it down the memory hole never to see it again, and they create this false narrative that people believe because they have no reference to know any better. Um, let me just give you an example. Um, I wanted to take time to talk about Rush Limbaugh's passing. Um, Rush Limbaugh, for me, uh, was important in my life. I've been listening to him since he came on the air back in the 80s. Um, I wouldn't say I was... Um, I wouldn't say that I was a lifetime listener. I listened periodically. I certainly agreed with a lot of the things he said. And I remember, and he also educated me about our founding, the founding America's principles. And my father was a military officer, many of you know. My father taught me to love this country. He taught me that even with all our scars and all of our faults, we're still the greatest society that ever existed. And I still believe that today. And Rush Limbaugh helped me articulate my thoughts and helped me sort of put things into perspective the way I was thinking. And he did it in an environment that was, uh, he was in many ways a lone warrior. From the day he started, he was attacked and lied about, basically, and created this um, negative opinion of him in a lot of the uh, a lot of the people's minds. I mean, there are people out there who've never heard a word Rush Limbaugh has to say, and they hate him with the white hot intensity of a million suns. They wouldn't be able to know him if they even saw him. And I've seen on social media a lot of horrific things talking about people celebrating his death. And I'm thinking to myself, we've really gotten off track and we've gotten to a dangerous place. And Rush Limbaugh showed me that telling the truth has consequences and that you have to be courageous to be able to tell the truth. And I thank him for doing that. I'm an older person now. Um, I've been listening to him for a long time. And I'm like a lot of you, I'm wrestling with my fear of sharing my thoughts for fear of cancel culture, uh, for fear of people telling lies about me. And let me just let me just explain to you how this works. When Barack Obama became president of the United States, and again, uh, I'm opposed to liberalism. I'm a conservative, and I don't think that's any secret. But Rush Limbaugh made a statement, and he said, if Obama's goal is socialism, then I hope he fails. That's what he said. I remember I was listening to it. The media presented it as, I hope Obama fails. So there's a whole population of people that did not hear the whole thing. They hear bits and pieces. And this narrative gets spun that Rush Limbaugh just hoped Obama failed because he's a racist and hateful and all this kind of stuff. And it's just not true. He said if his goal is socialism, 
then I hope he fails. Well, I feel the same way. Nothing against the man as an individual, just his ideology of socialism, I'm 100% opposed to. And I'm just going to say right now, any man, woman, or child out there that's pushing socialism, I'm opposed to that. And if you're out there pushing socialism, whether it's socialized medicine or socialism in our schools or socialism in our society in any way, I oppose you and I hope you fail. Um, We've seen during the COVID pandemic, and I really like the COVID pandemic because I feel that I have a good perspective for my education, my background, my position, that I see it from a vantage point that a lot of people don't see it. And it makes a lot of things clear to me. And that's what I'm trying to share for you. But I was listening to to Trump talking about um, hydroxychloroquine. I remember listening to him when he was talking about bleach. And it was becoming apparent early on that uh, uh, COVID-19, that SARS-CoV-2 was very uh, susceptible to disinfectant. The viruses have coats on them and things like that, and sometimes they're resistant to disinfectant, sometimes they're susceptible to it, and Trump was talking about the different modalities that could be used to possibly treat the COVID-19 and he talked about bleach in there and the media took that and said that Trump instructed people to inject bleach into their bodies it is absolutely not what he said I was watching it live it's a complete joke and anybody who's intellectually curious can actually pull up the press conference and watch it for themselves most people are not and I will tell you that very smart people that I know that are in my life that have been in my life for a long time believe that he said this, and I'm stunned. The power of the media to lie to us and to create these narratives that we now all have separate truths. Um, One of my biggest um, examples, uh, this comes up all the time. I was a supporter of President Trump. Um, The when. Trump was talking about Charlottesville, and we all remember Charlottesville uh, was a, a rally that um, people were were protesting the tearing down of statues. Uh, some people advocated the tearing down of Civil War statues, and President Trump said that there were very fine people on both sides. And the media spun that to make people believe that he was talking about the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists who were there who wanted to preserve the the statues. But there were also people like me. I'm not a white supremacist, and I'm not a neo-Nazi, and I oppose any kind of discrimination for any reason, whether you're a conservative or your sex or your race or your gender or your creed, whatever. I don't believe in any of that. But I do not believe that we should be tearing down our statues. Now, that's not to say we can't have a, a discussion about... You know, if you have a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was, uh, you know, a big Klansman and a a Civil War Southern Cavalry officer who actually had a lot of admirable qualities, but he was obviously a racist. I have no problem with people talking about, hey, it's been 100 years and let's talk about removing that statue. But what I'm opposed to is mobs going out and just tearing down statues indiscriminately. And we also saw... At the time that the Charlottesville thing was going on, the concern was we're tearing down certain statues now and that in a little while in the future, it'll be George Washington and and Thomas Jefferson. Well, we're already there. 
people are already wanting to tear down George Washington and and Thomas Jefferson and take their whole lives and beings and the whole founding of our co- our country out of context. Well, this is ridiculous. And I point no further than I call it the Charlottesville hoax. The media still will say Trump's a racist and cite the media and cite the Charlottesville riot where Trump said there were very fine people on both sides. What he meant was there were very fine people on both sides of the issue of whether or not to tear the statues down. But he said specifically, and you can look this up on your own, Trump specifically said, I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis or the white supremacists. They should be condemned totally. That's what he said. And yet the media just let that go forever. Joe Biden even brought it up in the debates that that Trump said this. And, you know, when I think about the media, it's all of them, whether it's Fox News or CNN or NBC, ABC, NBC, any of these uh, news stations, they all allowed this narrative to be spun and people would bring it up on Fox News and there was no challenge. They would just let it go as if it was fact. And this is what's going on is we get to this point where there's different truths and they spin this narrative and 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 this is happening in our healthcare. Now my perspective is always about healthcare. I want free market medicine and I'm just pointing out that these narratives get spun all the time that are based on 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 false information and outright lies. We had, we just saw, I just told you, the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet published fake studies on hydroxychloroquine to prevent us from using it. If you are a doctor in a blue state, you risk losing your license, having your business shut down, uh, getting fired from your job. The hospital systems, which again, we were talking about, they're just wealth redistribution centers for governments. They get money allocated to them through Medicare, through Medicaid, that money payment then gets transferred back to these politicians. This has been documented over and over again. These uh, entities are in control of our health care. They're preventing us from being able to prescribe things like hydroxychloroquine. So if you're a doctor and you're employed by a hospital and you do the research the way I did and you think that hydroxychloroquine is worth giving to your patient, you're not allowed to. The hospital just says, we don't do that. And what do they cite? They cite the CDC based on these fake studies in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet. This all goes back to there is no arbiter of truth. There is no person who doesn't have an agenda who's looking out for you. And it's why it's so important that when it comes to something as important as our health care, that you maintain control of your own health care. Now, one of the things that was going on with COVID was this narrative that uh, people are dying. There are, the, it quickly devolved into this political positioning where basically the left wanted lockdowns, masks, and school closures. The right didn't want these things. And the, the science has been perverted and ignored. And in order for people to uh, interpret something that's so controversial like that, we need to have free speech. We need to have open dialogue. Now, I'm not saying I'm right about everything. 
but I should at least have the ability to talk about it and ask my questions like, why did Dr. Fauci preside over an NIH that published a paper in 2005 that showed that hydroxychloroquine seemed to be very effective at SARS-CoV-1, okay? SARS-CoV-1 is 78% the same as SARS-CoV-2, uh, and that they, they thought it was a great thing. Why, why did we not even get to talk about that? Why did he never bring it up? I'm telling you as a surgeon, I have studied masks my entire career. I mean, I wear masks in surgery. It's part of my craft. I've studied it. Why is it a hate crime for me to say that before 2020, masks don't seem to be effective at preventing influenza-like illnesses. That's what we talk about in medicine. We talk about influenza-like illnesses, these sort of respiratory illnesses like coronavirus, paramyxovirus, influenza virus, and others. Okay? I'm asking the question, What? when did masks become the end-all, be-all? Now we've gotten to the point now, and we've seen it on social media and everywhere, people getting into fistfights, people losing their jobs, to even bring up masks. I mean, I have patients I'm following that I haven't had any issues in my clinic and yet I have patients who'll come in and and hope you guys aren't wearing masks the way I want you to wear them and and they get all bent out of shape now all I'm saying is you don't have to believe me or whatever I'm just asking you to to ask yourselves can we not just talk about this lockdown lockdown is not a medical thing Lockdown is a political thing. Lockdown came about from computer programmers during the George W. Bush administration. And epidemiologists said, don't do this. Do not do this. This is negative. This will hurt and cause more problems. But yet it's the law of the land now. There was a lady, Genevieve Briant. She's the assistant program director of Applied Economics Master's Program at Johns Hopkins University. And she took CDC data and noticed, uh, she looked at this stuff from Twenty fourteen to twenty eighteen, and she basically just took available CDC David data, mortality numbers, and she noticed that there were no increased number of deaths um, through September of last year. And more importantly, uh, she noted that the COVID deaths went up, but other deaths across all age group, like heart disease and influenza and other causes of death, went down. So that the overall deaths were about the same. And people like me were pointing out, well, wait a second. That doesn't make any sense. How is it we have this deadly pandemic that that people are trying to argue is the most serious pandemic in the history of the world? And again, I'm just talking out loud here. I'm not making an assertion that that the pandemic is this or that. I'm just asking questions. This person, Genevieve Briand, who apparently is... Uh, smart enough to be the assistant program director of applied economics at Johns Hopkins University, she looks at the numbers on the CDC's website, so the available government data, and notices, hey, there's no increase in deaths. Well, that got published on November the 22nd. It then got repealed. It got retracted on November the 26th. And the reason is right here. I have it right here. Editor's note. 
After the newsletter published this article on November 22nd, it was brought to our attention that our coverage of Genevieve Brienne's presentation, COVID Deaths, A Look at the U.S. Data, has been used to support dangerous inaccuracies that minimize the impact of the pandemic. Since when did we have information squashed and censored because people are not interpreting it the way I don't know who these people are uh, they just don't like the way we're taking they, they, they're not saying the data's wrong they're just saying we're not using the data responsibly does this make sense to anybody listen medicine we've talked about on this show medicine is not a one size fits all thing it's not like here's the one option Medicine often has many options, and I have seen situations where 10 doctors will have different, 10 different opinions on the very same subject, and none of them are wrong. You have to take things into account about p- patients' risk tolerances and, and things about the patient that are unique, that make one decision right for them. And different doctors have different experiences, and I've used the example of hip arthroscopy in my own profession. My my training, my expertise is in sports medicine. I, I stick scopes and joints. It's my thing. And I'm good at it. And 20 years ago, I had patients coming in with hip problems, and I couldn't figure it out. I, I, nobody could. They were These people were suicidal, they, many of them. People were finding me from all over the world on the Internet. I have no idea how they did that. But they found it out that I knew about hips. And I started taking my instruments that were designed to go in the shoulder and sticking them in the hips. And I started learning things and fixing things. And now, you know, hip and there was no hip arthroscopy at the time, very limited. I was the most well-trained sports medicine guy or as well-trained as anybody, been around with all the best guys and girls. And uh, I'd never scoped a hip before I got out of my fellowship. The first time I scoped a hip was when I was already in practice. And I learned about it over 20 years. Well, if you go to a doctor who has no access to that information and has never scoped a hip, how would they be able to comment on what I'm learning? This is medicine. Doctors are out there learning things on their own all the time that are not in textbooks, that no government entity can chronicle and say this is best practices. Best practices is a fake term that is designed to prevent you from from challenging your medical care. They want you to believe that there's a hospital that can just list it, one, two, three, four, five, that these are best practices, this is how it is. Medicine doesn't work that way. That's why they call it the art of medicine. So today's show was uh, designed to get you to understand, in the end, there's nobody who looks out for your interests better than you. And what we need to do is make policy decisions regarding healthcare that promote your control over your health care. i got a bunch of stuff I didn't get to this time, but we'll try and get to it next time. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Have a great day. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.